0: Welcome back to the Unstressable podcast. I'm your host Alice Law and this podcast is a series of amazing conversations with incredible people talking about what makes them unstressable from some of life's greatest challenges and the greatest stresses and losses they've had to overcome and how they came back from them so that you can become unstressable through yours. My guest today is the wonderful Pega Gayami. I love speaking to Pega. She's truly such an incredible soul, and her work is unbelievable. So Pega is an award-winning writer, director, producer, and entrepreneur. She has famously directed and produced the incredible BBC documentary, I'm Yazidi, which talks of the struggles of the people of Kurdistan and understanding the honour-killing that go on over there. She's currently actually producing the second side to this story, and her body of work is truly amazing in all films. I really hope that you enjoy this incredible conversation talking about her insights into what it was like to actually go over into that part of the world that so many of us will never even see, let alone understand, and to come back to normal life in the UAE and how she adapted. I hope you enjoy it. thank you so much for joining today I'm so excited to finally have this conversation with you because we have been trying to do this episode for quite a while so it's
1: amazing I think it's been two years I don't know how you cool <laughs> do that it's like yes. COVID and pandemic yes and life and yeah work just takes over so well,
0: I'm so excited to have you today so thank you so much for your time I'm so excited too. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, okay, you are, first of all, you're the first um, documentary filmmaker, filmmaker in general that I've ever had on the podcast. So it's a really nice, interesting, different tangent for people to listen to. And I'm so excited about where this conversation's going to go. But I mean, first of all, I would just love for you to, you know, tell everyone, what was it, you know, about film that made you want to get into that side of life and do that as a career? What was your personal journey into the work you now do today?
1: Right. Um, first of all, I'm honoured. Thank you for having me as your first filmmaker. <laughs> 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 um, I think for me it was just a love of storytelling. And I, when I was growing up, you know, we didn't have access to cameras and phones and things like that, like we do now. Um, and the access I had to storytelling that was immediate was the stage so and for me it was acting uh, because I was very young and um, even though I was writing stories and things like that from a very young age I don't think anyone was willing to at that time point of time anyway you know um, give the director role to an eight-year-old <laughs> <and a laughs> nine-year-old or so Um, And I loved acting, you know, this was a part of storytelling that I really, really enjoyed, just embodying um, different people. And then eventually, as I got a little bit older and in my later teens and early 20s, I switched very quickly to the other side behind the camera, camera, if you will, because I realised that that sense of storytelling where I wanted to create a world where I could tell a story that will inspire some sort of empathy or understanding had to go beyond uh, me playing a role and it had to become a whole world that I can then create and stories that I can create and tell. So that's where um, filmmaking came from. And I think the first film I made was probably when I was 21, So I wasn't one of those eight-year-olds with a camera or anything like that, like Stanley Kubrick or (laughs) anything like that. For me, it was um, a lot more about sort of the ideas in my head that I wanted to find a way to portray. And now I'm lucky enough to be able to do this as a job and be able to use modern-day technology in order to translate these stories to an audience to the best of my ability, so yeah. and the ability of the team. Of course, it's never a one man show, one woman show. So, <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's always like a whole. You guys have a whole thing going on, do you? So many people. It's incredible. It's like clockwork. I think that was the other thing. The first time I, I so, the first time I stepped foot in on set was um, as an actress. And then I signed up to this extras um, agency so that I could get on the bigger sets quicker so that I didn't have to go through the audition process and not being chosen. And I just wanted to get on the sets and see how it all works. So I'd go in as um, an extra and I'd watch all these cameras and all this, you know, I would just watch everybody work and it was clockwork. Everybody just, it was like they had rehearsed it. You know, it was beautiful to me and I thought, this is it. this is it you know this is what I want and it was really yeah that was probably the the moment that I realized yep this is definitely it so I started with psychology and philosophy when I was at university it's that whole your parents trying to be you in a direction that you know where you can get a decent job and and then within I think the first semester I was like Oh hell no, (laughs) I can't do that. No, 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 no. (laughs) No, you know. So that's amazing though.
0: So okay, obviously you've done, you know, so many different kinds of films, like commercial work on and then documentary. And how is it that you sort of trans transition into the raw life, real film, raw life experiences of the documentary is? you know, such as I Am Yazidi, which is, you know, amazing on BBC, your documentary of Kyrgyzstan, incredible. But, I mean, how did you veer into that side of things? Because that's obviously a whole different, that's a whole different side of film in general, isn't it?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Non-fiction is definitely crazier than fiction could ever be. I mean, some of the stories and things that you come across, no one could could even come up with some of the things that I've seen and heard and experienced, it's not something, I mean, yes, you know, we're all creative and we're great writers and all this. But, yeah, I think with I Am Yazidi, yes, it was my first documentary and I'd gone to Kurdistan, Iraq, because I was more interested in the fiction element of their faith. And this idea that these very peaceful people, which I'd read about, um, were also worshipping the fallen angel, so to speak. And I thought, this will make a great fiction film. And so I went there to, I just wanted to be amongst them. It was just this pool that I can't explain because I was here uh, for the film festival in Abu Dhabi and Never in my life had I ever thought about travelling to a place like Iraq, ever. But there was just when the opportunity came to travel there um, and it was within two weeks of me finding out about the Yazidis in 2009 and within two weeks I was on the plane and over there I just could not sit (laughs) and think about this. So once I was over there and we were kind of filming the research and we were filming my interviews, just as you and I are doing now, for me to sort of go back to and uh, listen to or watch, and that then became the documentary, um, which is not I Am Yazidi, but the, the, the feature one. However, I Am Yazidi is a, is a branch of, of that film as well. So I'm Yazidi, and the next film both stemmed from that research that I was doing for a fiction film. Mm. So why did I choose to do a documentary? Because I think the genre chose itself and me as a storyteller had to be mature enough um, to surrender to that, that I don't even want to recreate this I've never done this before, but I'm going to give this a try because this deserves to appear on the screen as it is. Mm. <laughs> you know, it 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 shouldn't. It, this is not something I I want to or need to rewrite.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, like you say, like documentary. Obviously, is just when you hit something like that. I mean, for you finding out in your research originally, for example, about how you say you know, the Yazidis worshipping a fallen angel. I mean, how does that sort of, what did you first think when you found out that kind of research about that like specific story? What was it that interested you?
1: Um, yeah, for me, it was, it was that element, that, that really scary element of the place, which was Iraq at the time and it's still Iraq but you know that the fact that this is a kind of no-go zone and everybody was afraid to go there and then I stumbled across this faith that was just incredible um and it was I think it was a thing about it that scared me that made me want to go
0: would you be able to explain actually for the listeners what the faith is actually about for people who haven't you know
1: so, surface. yeah, it's, it's a very complicated faith because it's one of the oldest faiths, religions um, in the world and specifically in Mesopotamia, which is where most, if not all, religions came from, um, except the Asian and Chinese and, you know, all the other, you know what yeah. I mean by that. So I mean Abrahamic religions and then sort of the Mesopotamian religions such as Zoroastrianism or Yazidism which were in the beginning known as um, star, moon, and sun worshippers because absolutely, yeah, exactly. So they, you know, they believe in um, (laughs) It's such a complicated religion. It's not something you can say. So basically they believe that there is only one God, and then there is an entity between God and humans, which they call tawus which is the peacock angel, and it's shaped in a peacock. And then they have, like the rest of us, like everybody else, as in all the other Abrahamic religions, they have the um, six other angels that came to earth and formed the earth and all this. So ultimately their beliefs and all the other beliefs that I've read about, all the other faiths, are pretty much the same story but from a different perspective. So during the time that Yazidism was being, um, what's the word? I guess you could say during the time that was the most difficult for Yazidism to survive was during the Christian Crusades and then the Islamic um, crusades, I guess. Um, And what happened then was that in order for them to survive, they accepted all these other elements from all these other faiths. And just by nature of where they lived and the people that were their neighbours, they started sharing their culture and their religion and things. And so then Yazidism became something different to what it was initially. Mm -hmm. this is what we know until now in a very basic sort of you know paragraph synopsis (laughs) and I don't know if that made sense yeah it does does.
0: so obviously like you know you doing this kind of documentary it's like I'm Yazidi you go to places like you say you know going into Iraq that's not somewhere that most people as you've mentioned think okay I'm gonna to go to, I'm gonna to go to Iraq actually <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. so far I'll just take a trip yeah so I'll just take <laughs> a trip it's obviously you know it's thought of as you know it's essentially like a different world it's dangerous it's not somewhere you go ever on holiday it's like yeah. you know it's a proper destination situation for you so going to those places and seeing the things that you've seen that the average person you know like myself has never had insight into and probably will never have insight into going somewhere like that. Do you sometimes find it hard having this sort of heightened awareness and perspective of what the world is really like and then speaking to people who don't for just lack of insight of being able to do that?
1: Yeah, I find that sometimes, especially when I first came back um, from the 2016 shoot, it was really difficult for me to be the pegger I was before I went. Because the first time I went to Iraq, it was 2009, and Kurdistan was on the rise then. It was post Saddam Hussein and all these things, and there was a lot of investment over there and uh, the American influence and things like that. And then in 2016 was after ISIS. So there was, you know, an earthquake of atrocities (laughs) over there. So when I first came back, I think that was more difficult um, than the first time I went. The first time was also a little bit, it was shocking, but the second time was even more shocking. And I caught the mumps when I came back. Yeah, it was just my, I think my body just shut down just from all the, you know, so you're doing something that's very important in order to tell a story and you're letting this this story, this kind of star, this light lead you in all these different places. And at that moment, you're not really thinking about who you are. You're you're more so thinking about who they are Mm. and you're more so thinking about this idea of reality, this idea of reality, the reality that you accept in that situation which is no longer what you knew back home, it's now this. And this is the reality that you have to accept in order to survive this situation. What happened to me when I came back was you know, it's kind of like when you don't see your parents or your sister or just that place, your auntie or whoever's house you feel very comfortable in. And then you've had like a year of work, really stressful work. And then it's the Christmas holidays. And then you go home to your parents. And the first thing your body does is you just relax. You just shut down. You might sleep longer than you usually do. You eat more than you usually do. You know, you, you, it, it's a very different Um, sense of existing so when I came back I had this overwhelming sense of grief for what they had gone through and this complete disconnect with where I was back in Dubai and the pegger that I was expected to be when I came back and everybody was celebrating this thing that I'd done called I am Yazidi and for me, it was nothing to be celebrated. In fact, I wish those things never happened for me to go and make a film about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, so the first thing that happened to me was I became physically ill, which was the mumps. And I'd gone to all these um, refugee camps and I'd met so many different people and, um I mean, the hygiene wasn't so bad, but the illnesses were definitely there um, and these people had not too many available doctors around um, for them to be diagnosed and, and then also medicine, you know. So I must have caught something from someone <laughs> during some one of the interviews or something um, and my system just gave up. And then, you know, there's this element of... How do I now relate to my friends, peers, and colleagues? um, Or, you know, be in a relationship where the person understands me because that's the hardest thing. Um, You know, so I became a bit of a hermit during that time when I first came back. Um, I think firstly, I needed to work on the film. So I needed to find a way quickly to get better and go to London or come to London. <laughs> and, you know, it was an amazing thing that the BBC had picked this film up and wanted to co-produce it with me. So, you know, it was very much, okay, well, I can't deal with that part of it right now, which is the friends, the family, the people who really want to see me and celebrate this apparent Thing I've done, I need to get back to work and finish this film. And, you know, it never gets easier and it never gets comfortable. Um, for example, when we were editing I Am Yazidi um, in the edit suite in the BBC, the editor, the edit producer, my assistant, and I were bawling our eyes out. And these, you know, the edit and edit producer work at the BBC, so they see these kind of things all the time, but it never gets easy. I think, you know, when you have raw human emotion of someone who's in a lot of pain, um, you can't help it. We're human, you know, and if if you become desensitised to that, like if I was to, then I can't tell this story. Mm. So I have to let myself feel all those emotions. It's kind of like acting, but it's more real. <laughs> you know. I mean,
0: um, yes, yeah. such an incredible. Like you say, I mean, a lot of people shut off their emotions in general. In you know the West, I talk about this a lot on the podcast. How you know we're so so adverse to feeling our negative emotions we push away our pain and just prolong our suffering by doing so because we have to feel things to be able to move move through it and move those kind of negative things out of our body but actually feeling all the things that you did and having to see obviously things that the average person will never see over here like real horrors and such pain and trauma from people that must have been such an intense experience for you. I and mean, how did you cope with that kind of, you know, it's suffering? interesting.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting that you say that we push our emotions back, which I did. But the thing that happens to repressed emotions, as you know, they come back and they, you know, slap you in the face like a dead fish until yeah. you you get it. And so, you know, for some time. I mean, I knew that, for example, I, I needed to make the feature film of I Am City, which is called something else. But I needed to finish what I had started. But for years I ran away from doing that because I needed to heal. Subconscious, You know, these are all unconscious things. I didn't know that I needed to heal. But I, I, my actions were telling me that I need to go in a different direction and work on some, you know, lighter things, you know, like a cooking show or a, you know, thing, a commercial, a Hyundai commercial or something, you know. So mm. it kind of allowed me the creative juices um, to, to keep the creative juices flowing and to be paid and to earn a living and to, you know, maintain my my work. But it's not. I couldn't go back to the film until. I decided to think about why I can't finish something I'm very passionate about. And it was all those suppressed feelings and repressed emotions and all the things that I was running away from that needed to be dealt with in order to set me free and make me strong enough to come back to the project, which is where I am now. Mm. And there is a point where with any job, you know, healers, real healers, there is a time where you think, yes, I am dealing with people's raw emotions or I'm telling a story or I'm – but there is a point where now I'm me and that is over there and you – or I had to separate my emotions that I was feeling during the edits, during the making of this film, during shooting, to who I am outside of that. Because I'm this very bubbly, happy, jumpy, you know, love sports, love reading books, love telling jokes kind of person. And then at the same time, I'm this really serious person that's telling this really serious um, story. Um, so I think that taking steps towards healing myself and it's really funny. I mean, I don't know if other writers or directors, I'm sure they do, but there is a point where you realize the story is talking back to me because it's a reflection of how I feel or think, So I always used to think that this film chose me because it really landed in my lap. I wasn't really going for this kind of a story. And then once I started doing more inner work, I realised that actually, no, hello, responsibility. It was me that chose the film. And why did I do that? And so, you know, it's a very personal Emotional spiritual journey for me, to be honest yeah um, and yeah and that's that's i mean you know it it, it is it, yeah it it can get and, and you you kind of have to stay mindful as well, you have to be aware of. Um, Well, for me, I have to, I can't keep saying you, but I have to (laughs) be aware of, you know, turning off certain thoughts, certain images, certain things, and accepting, as hard as it is, accepting that these things are out there and they're happening, whether I know about them, whether I'm there or not, it's, it's kind of like that tree that falls you know in the middle of the jungle and no one's there to hear it just because i'm not there to hear it doesn't mean it's not happening but it's something i have to accept and i also have to accept that i have this position in this life in order to help maybe in order to be able to tell their stories i have this amazing opportunity um to, to be able to translate these things, you know, so I can't fall, you know, I have to be stronger and I have to accept that my life is better than someone else's life. By the same token, someone else's life is much better than my life, you know, and, and that sense of guilt that you mentioned in one of, one of your questions, that sense of guilt yeah it can really 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 suffocate you and -hmm. it was for me it really was I mean for years I just I wouldn't go to family parties I wouldn't go out I wouldn't post happy pictures um, because you know I'd become friends with with some of the people on Facebook and Instagram and Uh, And I thought to myself, how can I post a picture of me celebrating something when I know the person who's going to see this is sitting there in that refugee camp, in that small little room, not knowing where his family are, not knowing where his wife or kids or her husband or her kids are. And here I am, having gone there, having witnessed this, and I'm here partying with my friends. It doesn't even make sense to me. How dare I, you know, how dare I have fun? And it's, it's you know, then, it, then you, you know, then you have to think, okay, well, if I don't do what I have to do in order to feel good, then I can't really help them either, can I? I can't really help myself. I can't help anybody. I'm miserable. No one wants to be around me because no one understands me anymore, you know, and then you kind of take steps back and I always wondered if astronauts feel like that I know war veterans do but I always Mm. thought if when astronauts come back how do they acclimate (laughs) to gravity
0: it's true isn't it it's people who've gone to those extreme situations like you say war veterans someone like you who's filmed in like these extreme circumstances and then astronauts who go to space and no one can have any understanding and it's true it's like having to adapt to being a very small percentage of people who live in you know a more I guess privileged side of the world and not ever having experienced these atrocities in different parts of the world because obviously the people in that side of the world all experience it at the same time but you go in and you come out and then it's like Where am I?
1: (laughs) Who am I? Where am I? Where do I come from? And I think I sort of accepted it as my responsibility to be able to have people who are more privileged understand what those people are feeling and how they're living by speaking in a language that we understand we're on this side of the line. So that to me was this documentary. Yeah. Um, And, you know, there's the reverse of that as well. I mean, you're over there and those people don't understand you either. (laughs) It's like, oh, that crazy woman who keeps showing up every couple of years (laughs) to film here, (laughs) you know. And sometimes, you know, I mean, Sometimes I would be in an interview with someone and they would get angry with me because um, my family is Muslim. I'm born into a Muslim household and they have suffered a lot um, in the name of Islam. I don't say from Islam, but in the name of Islam because of, you know, ISIS and all this. So there were times in interviews where I felt that I'm, You know, there is so much prejudice and, ju- and in, injustice in this conversation because now I'm being accused for something no one from my bloodline or my family or even my beliefs. And there were times where I would say, why don't you ask me what I believe? Why are you just judging me? Why are you assuming that because I'm Muslim, I come from a Muslim household, that I'm here to tell an awful story about you. And there was a time when I said, okay, if you don't want someone to tell an awful story about you, stop doing stupid things. (laughs) And that goes for everybody or any culture because someone at some point will show up and be interested in your culture and will be interested in tearing it apart. And that's not what I did, but, you know, for the sake of the girl who was killed in the name of honour, To try and understand why.
0: Mm.
1: You know? Um, So, you know, there's the flip side of that as well. So, you're kind of, it's very lonely. You don't fit in there. (laughs) You don't fit in here. You don't fit in anywhere. (laughs) Feeling like a nomad.
0: (laughs) But yeah. So, I mean, okay, going to like Kurdistan, for example, what is it actually like to film a documentary somewhere like that?
1: Piece of cake. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in what way? So do you mean safety or just logistics? safety and the
0: experience and sort of how you feel every day, the sort of experiences you have to go through to be able to do that.
1: I think for me, um, my – one of my assets was that I spoke Farsi and – you'll have to watch my next film to know why that was an asset. (laughs) But, I mean, I spoke Farsi and a lot of Kurds, not a lot, but they also kind of speak a little bit of Farsi. And the fact that I could blend in um, and that I was, you know, I made this film as one of them. I wasn't an outsider coming in to point the camera at people so when I met people, I made sure that I put my, you know, that that they saw it for what it is, that someone that genuinely loves you, thinks the world has been unfair to you, thinks you're being unfair to yourself, um, but is here because of this, you know, I don't need to be here, for example, in one of the refugee camps, and this is in the upcoming film, um you know he said look you just want to get famous from our stories and I you know at this point I think I lost it a little bit I have to watch that particular footage back but I said look (laughs) it's my birthday and it was my birthday that day I'm sitting here in a refugee camp in Kurdistan no one's paying me to do this at that time I hadn't even signed the contracts with BBC I said and I'm here trying to understand your story to update my film from 2009 and 2010 I have traveled the world following your story and you're talking to me like there's a million ways that a woman can get famous (laughs) she does (laughs) not need to be sitting you know in a refugee camp in Kurdistan um interviewing you you know and um so, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you, there, there are a lot, of, a lot of backlashes like that as well that you learn to deal with. Um, but, you know, in general, I think uh, my crew and I were, became very close and we became good friends. We would have breakfast, lunch and dinner together. We would spend all hours of the night just looking at the footage and stuff and they were from Kurdistan. So everyone I worked with was from there. I didn't take anyone over with me um, except one girl who came as an assistant right at the end. Um, but that's more so because not it was more sort of kind of an internship more so. Um, but I think also just because they knew the situation over there, they could educate me. And sometimes at some of the hotels I was staying at, and this is really funny because it was exactly like the Hollywood movies. So you'd see these guys, these huge guys in suits and earpieces, and you knew immediately someone important was in the, in, <laughs> in, in the hotel. And if anybody wanted to kidnap anybody, they would know where to find them just by looking at these guys standing outside. <laughs> you know so walking around like this I swear and I thought thank god I'm not doing that firstly I don't have the money to pay for that sort of thing (laughs) and secondly you know I kind of want to just weave through get to the point blend in as much as I can and talk to these people and try and understand them better um in terms of what it was like in Kurdistan, I have to tell you, there were some amazing moments. We laughed, we danced, we made food. Um, you know, people will constantly invite me over to feed me and I love food. So, you know, there were moments um, that are not... I will, so, you know, have them in the next film, but it they are part of life that you experience when you're over there. So it wasn't all awful, you know. Some of it was just people being people and being friendly and um, loving each other, you know, and that's the other thing. What unites us? We're all the same. We want Mm -hmm. the same things. You know, we want love, we want safety, we want money, we want peace, we like drama, you know, (laughs) all of those things, they're universal. Um, And you find that over there, I mean, sometimes I watch the footage back and I think how did I understand this person at that time that was speaking to me in Kurdish, not even Farsi, not even, you know, and I was replying in English or Farsi and this person understood Because at that moment, we're not speaking languages. We're speaking from human to human, from heart to heart. And we're talking to each other through this language that we still haven't really, I mean, we really don't know what that language is other than the language of love, friendship, being a human, and just understanding each other without understanding each other's language. Mm. Um, and most of the people in the crew didn't speak any of the languages I spoke, <laughs> but somehow we were able to make a film, you know. That's amazing, isn't it,
0: that you can have those interactions with people that are essentially like people being able to read not just body language but energy and understand what each other is saying through that that method, and it's, I guess it's like the original... You know, form of communication. Like, you know, when someone meets someone who is so far from their world, you know, that's the only thing you have, really. Yeah, (laughs) understanding.
1: Um, And this was my second experience doing that. So the first one was in the north of Iran, where I shot a film in the north of Iran, and they speak a completely different dialect. They don't speak Farsi. And same thing. You know, in the editing suite, I was like. Oh, that lady spoke to me in Gilaki. I don't don't understand. And she doesn't understand, but somehow we were able to communicate, you know? So, as a woman
0: going over there, did you ever feel like a sense of less safety than, say, the male crew that you had around you? To be
1: honest with you, no, I didn't. I don't know if that's just inherent and that's just something that I have always been, or if that was just how it was. I I didn't feel insecure as a woman. There were times where I felt that there could have been a kidnapping as um, an outsider, and it was only until I, not until I watched the footage back, that I, with translation, that I realized what was actually going on. And, yeah, just trusting my intuition and kind of removing myself and the crew from a situation that would have otherwise ended very badly. There were a few times like that. Really? So, yeah, I think just the topic that I was making this I Am Yazidi about was taboo, is taboo still, because it's a shameful thing for the Yazidis. It's not something that they're proud of. Um, it is something that exists in a lot of cultures. Um, but I guess because the Yazidis have suffered so much already, because of just where they're situated, they're Kurdish, they kind of in that, in that way, they don't, didn't really have any land. Uh, they're a religion that nobody has really accepted as a religion or hadn't accepted at least until when I, uh, 2009 when I was there. So, you know, this, this sense of identity, this lack of, of identity, um, you know, that usually comes from a flag or comes from a land uh, or a culture, for them was their religion. And then killing in the name of this religion actually goes against the beliefs of the religion. So is it a Yazidi problem or is it a cultural problem? But then, you know, this film specifically is speaking about a situation that involves Yazidi men killing a Yazidi woman. So...
0: (laughs) The doggy. So was there a specific moment that you know changed your outlook on life when you were filming this? you know I'm ZD oh, being over there.
1: To be honest, there were plenty. Um, there were plenty, and as I mentioned before, they change you from the inside. so they change you from a sense of if my identity, for example, is my family and my religion and my, I don't mean me, I mean all of us, everybody. Um, And I'm over here studying another race, another culture, another religion and objectively looking at these people. Um, It does force you to look at yourself and your own life and your decisions in a very different way because you think, okay, the core of my existence might be something else if it wasn't coloured with all these other things that I'm seeing in these people as I'm talking to them and as I'm studying them and looking at them very objectively or subjectively, you know. Um, To pinpoint an instant... I think what drew me to this film was because I couldn't understand what was going on over there. And in order to understand what was going on, I went over there and I went amongst the people. I think kindness, the kindness that you see in people, even though they want nothing to do with you, they will still let you walk into their house and still offer you tea, even though they hate the fact that you're making a film about them that talks about something that's very taboo and shameful to them. Um, I think there were times when I saw hate that I understood. And there were times when I didn't expect myself to understand this kind of hate towards others mm. and the only way that I could understand it was because I'd have I'd, I had had this shift in reality that you and I spoke about and I had accepted reality as it was presented to me when I was over there and by accepting that reality means I became, one, with the people around me. I was no longer a fly on the wall. I was a person in the room. And when you look at the situation from a person in the room, then you end up feeling the emotions of everybody else. You end up understanding the pain. You're no longer the doctor. You're the patient like everybody else. So then you start seeing the world through this perspective and when you're vacuumed out of that and you have to vacuum yourself out of that because you have to be able to try to remember and it's really hard sometimes but it's you have to try to remember who you are outside of that situation outside of those feelings outside of that reality in order for you to be able to ask the right questions in order for you to be able to get these kind of answers or try to understand this that makes sense yeah is that kind of does that it's
0: like answer
1: your question proper um
0: what's well, the true meaning of empathy really being able to actually put yourself in someone else's shoes but not from the mind from the heart and actually you know seeing things from that space, because that's one of the hardest things that a lot of people find to do. I mean, I'm a natural empath, so I sometimes just take people's <laughs> instantaneously, and it's like you say, you have to also have boundaries of it, be able to go in and come out. Otherwise, if you're constantly in other people's pain and suffering, you actually get lost yourself. Um, that's right.
1: That's right. Exactly. And I think empathy was one of the things that pushed me, or oh, really inspired me to make films because I had this natural understanding like you said of uh, this empathy towards people and their situations and things and I just couldn't ever translate that to my friends even at school I mean I remember I went to a Catholic school and everyone in my school was pretty much Catholic and Australian so me and like maybe three other people were not Catholic and not Australian in that sense, um, as in not Anglo-Saxon. So then, um, I'd go to Iran with my family and I'd see these amazing mosques and these awesome people and these old men on the streets who were doing these weird and wonderful things. And, you know, and, i I'd come back and I had to quickly acclimate or reacclimate to the situation that I was in as the identity that I have in Australia because I, there was no way in hell my friends would understand <laughs> what I was talking about or why it was beautiful and not weird, you know. So I think that's one of the things that definitely made me want to become a filmmaker, a storyteller. Um, in order to be able to tell these stories in a way that speaks to people's hearts. Um, and then also what really pushed me to tell I Am Yazidi, this story, because, and also the, the one that's following, because I believe that there are misunderstood, misunderstood people but also that the part of them that we misunderstand is also the part of us that we don't understand, mm. you know, and that empathy also brings back a lot of self-knowledge and teaches you a lot about yourself if you're willing to go there, if you're willing to accept that, you know, there were three types of, of people, you know, at, at the scene of the killing. There was the, the killers, the predators, the victim and the bystander. And I believe we have all played those roles in different scenarios, roles <laughs> yeah. in our lives, you know, and it's that moment. And when you said, you know, what changed, changed your perspective, it's the moment where I realised that, shit, I could be either three of these people there is one of them in me and there is me in in all of them, you know, and that was the moment that just shifted my perspective.
0: Mm. How did you get to a point with, say, you know, understanding the perspective of the killers, for example, not that you Obviously, you
1: know uh, yes that yes
0: yourself, yeah. but it's like understanding yeah. slightly their perspective in terms of how did you get to that point it's
1: how did it become thing. okay for them mm. you have to watch my next film because <laughs> that's what it's about <laughs> <I> definitely will <laughs> yeah that's you have to watch the next the film will explain what you just asked okay. I'm dying to say it but I'll wait okay because these these are things we can talk about um, but like I said, it's just, you know, it's that sense of empathy and, you know, becoming the patient in a situation like that. Yeah. That's, that's the best way that you can understand why people think it's okay to do things that are really not okay. Yeah. It I is guess. not fair to take someone else's life for any reason so
0: it's uh it's like that whole phrase isn't it we're all the product of our own experiences and so how do you kind of put yourself into the potential experiences they've had to make them stand where they now are standing and believe the things that they now believe because of those experiences to remember everyone has all these even within a even within like you know the west within a country say like you know the uk where Everyone might have a generalized culture that's similar, but we all have so many different life experiences and circumstances and um, privilege and poverty and all these different you know personal experiences within families that you can have very different perspectives within one culture just like that. so I guess that's kind of how those things happen like you say how you have the bystander, the patient, and you know the doctor or whatever that sort of thing yes. you just said before. Yeah. Why that happens that's um
1: Yeah. And you know we we live through situations like that it, it might be a metaphorical situation. Um but we you know there's always bullying there's always misunderstanding there's always ignorance. Um someone said to me and it was really he was a professor actually at the university in Kurdistan, and he said, Pega, honour killing doesn't happen in the West because it can't happen, because it's against the law. But when it becomes okay with the law to accept a tribal law over the governing law, military law, then it becomes okay. And he made me think of this film, you know, The Purge, have you seen it? I haven't seen it, I've heard of it. i heard it. Where everyone goes and kills their neighbour, basically. It's kind of this 24 hours where you can go and kill whoever you want. <laughs> and <laughs> it's a really nice symbol, you know, symbolically how people feel about each other. You know, if someone really shakes your sense of identity by an action that has absolutely nothing to do with you, I mean, just look, just watch the people who go to a football game, right? If you were to just turn the camera onto the audience, or or a, a, an MMA fight, I mean, we are watching two people physically hurting themselves, <laughs> each other, <Yeah. laughs> you know, and we're like cheering and you know, yeah, kill him. And I've been one of those people too. It's like a gladiator in Roman times. It's like that's yeah. it. And it still exists. You know, why is it okay to accept one form of violence over another form? Why mm. is it that we, we can point fingers and say, oh, those people over there killing themselves and killing each other, let them just bomb each other to death. But it's, it's okay for us to, you know, kill, rape and kill a woman on, in front of everybody in a subway, and no, uh, a subway station and nobody talks about that. No one says, oh, those crazy terrorists, right? You know, I mean, these kind of things happen all the time and it's unfortunate and look at all the stuff that's happening with, you know, women not being able to walk through a park in the West, mm-hmm. not being able to feel comfortable going out, wearing whatever we want in the West, you know, so when you think about the ignorance and when you think about standards that we accept as a reality that we accept, we're not really that different.
0: Yeah.
1: They just have permission to do it.
0: That's such an interesting perspective, isn't it? Like and it's say. scary. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's so scary. <laughs>
0: It is. Okay, so from, you know, obviously these different perspectives and everything you've seen, obviously there's the bad and there's the good. What do you believe are the things that all of humanity has in common? And you touched on a few earlier, but out of all those things, what do you think we all really want fundamentally?
1: Empathy. We want to be understood. We don't want to feel alone. No one wants to be alone. This is why we move in herds. You know, this is why we have culture and identity and these kind of things, you know, because we don't want to be alone. I think that's probably um, what drives herds, you know, and that's what drives this kind of mentality. And deep down... We're all just children that don't want to be alone. And everybody's acting from that perspective, everything they're doing, whether they're hurting another human or loving another human, a lot of the times is because of that, 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 that child that doesn't want to be alone, that adult that doesn't want to be alone.
0: I find that such an interesting, I think that's so true. I think that, you know, even the person who says they want to be alone and that they spend time alone and actually enjoy their own company, which is an incredible thing and I love doing that myself. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) You still don't want to be alone. That's a totally different thing in terms of feeling
1: like, lonely, okay, I, I have guess. no
0: person no tribe no connection in the world yeah.
1: and you don't want to feel lonely maybe yeah. that's the word we're looking for alone and lonely I guess different things I'm alone quite a lot and I really yes. <laughs> yeah I know you do um it's really um we don't want to be lonely you know Uh, We like to have family. We like to have friends. We like to have people that we can share this experience of life with. Um, And like I said, there are so many other things, you know, we we need rules. We want drama. We we want all the other things that we say we don't want. We do want those things because they give us a sense of feeling. They make us feel like we're alive.
0: I think it's interesting though, isn't it? It's like, I think, taking this, are you, on a slightly spiritual tangent now, because I will ask you about this in a second anyway. I think the whole concept of loneliness, you know, my belief is that because even when people have, for example, um, near-death experiences and they go over to the other side for a moment and they come back, a lot of people always say the same thing. I felt this incredible, overwhelming feeling of just pure love. And I think when we come from that place, That's what we're used to. That's who we are. We come to this world and have this false sense of separation because of the way humans are and you know all the things that go on. Um that can cause us to feel lonely when in actual fact we all obviously have this connection between all of us all the time. If we allowed it to to be that way. It's like you have a talking about, you know, having that discussion with someone in a totally different culture with a totally different language and you guys being able to understand each other somehow, that's, you know, a connection of the fact that we are all connected, you know, somehow we have the same something, you know, spirit, essence, whatever it is within us in a small fragment. And um, I think that sense that you say of loneliness is a really, it's really the opposite of who we are. And I think that's why we all want to get back to What we actually are—the you know, connected and that sense of love. So, if we talk about spirituality, sorry, no, Carol.
1: Sorry, and that can be often misunderstood, and that can be often you know taken into a direction where it becomes, um, you know, where it becomes traumatizing, where it becomes. Um, acts of terror to maintain this sense of unity with your clan, you know, and things like that. And I I think what you mentioned is really important of where we come from and when we first come here, how we feel as as children. And I think that's what I meant as well when I said that, you know, we're all these lonely or, you know, these children inside that don't want to be lonely. It's because we are that, you know, at some point or other, your mom or dad is going to put you down and go to the other room to get something. At that point, you feel neglected. Now they don't have to walk out on you and we don't even have to, you know, go into the extreme cases of people who've been neglected or left alone or things like that. I mean, it can just be that. And that to you just translates as neglected. You know, and then you have separation anxiety and then you have all these things. So then you spend the rest of your life trying to make up for that, mm. you know. And this this question of of spirituality, it's really to help you get back to that, to understand that without all the other stuff, right? So it's really how do I, your question was,
0: yeah, so what does spirituality actually personally mean to you as well?
1: I think it's that. It's that connection that you talked about when I feel incredibly connected to anything or anyone and also then to myself. And just, you know, that it's that moment where you can hear yourself breathing, you can feel yourselves and you know that you are connected to everything else on this planet and the universe. That, to me, is the meaning of spirituality. It's understanding that it's not about, I mean, I think rituals and things like this are important. Initiations are very important. But I think for me it was never really about procedures and words and you know, I know that words are powerful and prayers are powerful and things, but I know that that feeling that's inside of me is more powerful than anything. And so when I'm able to access that emotion, you know, it's that to me is, is spirituality. It's that emotion, that explosive emotion inside of me that's just pure happiness and pure love for no reason that to me is spirituality and when i can feel connected to everything and everyone and have this sense of appreciation and gratitude that's what it is mm-hmm. to me
0: yeah i, I know love that I, mean. I think that's so true and <laughs> you said
1: as well earlier that
0: near the beginning that it was obviously it was also quite a spiritual experience for you um doing that you know film and the films you do i mean What part of it did you find spiritual in that sense, that connection to other people or something else?
1: I think if we're willing to accept that everything in our life is somehow a spiritual journey, then you could be a tow truck driver, you could be a taxi driver, you could be a cobbler, you could be anybody and still be having those spiritual moments in every single day and the work that you do because, I I honestly think that I see it as a spiritual journey because I'm open to seeing it as a spiritual journey. I'm open to receiving that information. Um, The film is talking back to me. Funny enough, the first film I ever made, which was a fiction film, well, the the first one that I would call a film and not an experiment, (laughs) was about a girl that was being killed because of her bloodline. (laughs) <laughs> wow. that was, and that was a fiction I wrote when I was about 24 I think that's crazy so yeah so I allowed myself to see this I allowed myself to understand this on a deeper level than oh this is my job and you know I'm going to go and report this and I'm going to go and do that and feel really important And da, 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 da. it was really about okay what's going on because of those red flags, because of the, what I told you, that, that, that I was running away from something, because I was unwilling to um, deal with specific things, because I had all these suppressed and repressed emotions that wanted to come out and wanted me to acknowledge them and wanted to talk to me and tell me what it is about this situation that could actually change my life, Pega not the life of someone else but how how is this changing my life why am i not paying attention to this why am i seeing this as oh god i've got to make that film and oh my god it's so painful and it's this and it's that and it's you know i chose this i want because this had to speak back to me this had to teach me something
0: i think that's so true that you know all these experiences that we go through like you're always we always say as well you know in reiki and things even what you're teaching is actually what you need to relearn constantly and that's that constant reflection and I think that's literally it like what you're saying you're making this incredible film which seems so far off your own reality of life back in you know the UAE but Actually, there's things within that that you can see within yourself and are reflecting back those things. And that's just uh, it's so fascinating and so powerful because most people would think, well, I have nothing in common with, you know, that situation. But That killer.
1: Do. Yeah, exactly. The killer, you know. How do you come to terms with something like that? Mm. It's just... I'm not a killer, just putting it out there. I have not ever wanted to kill anyone. <laughs> you know, I've just a never... disclaimer for Peggy. Yes, just, just I'm not, I'm not going to shoot anyone. I'm not going to kill anyone, you know. Um, it is, yeah, it's, it's
0: incredible what you say.
1: The The world of spirituality is, is you know, that's when you kind of realise, oh, my God, I'm an avatar. <laughs> you know, it's just this this world that unless I allow myself, I will never have access to. And what a shame that more people don't have access to that. And what a shame that I don't have more access to it and I'm not allowing myself the time as well to, you know, just sit in silence and listen, just shush, just don't speak. Just don't speak for a while. Don't, you know, just let yourself. And how amazing would it be You know, I often think about the situation of um, that girl's killing and, uh, you know, sometimes I imagine it as how amazing would it be if instead of killing her, she'd fallen down and someone came and just sort of helped her up and said, you know what, let me just put you on my shoulders and take you home safely and you'll be okay and the situation, what we don't like about you. We can talk about tomorrow, you know. And we'll, we'll even speak to your family about it, you know. We'll have a big meeting about it, you know. We'll we'll all attend the ceremony where you know we we talk about it. I mean, why why can't we already be there? So
0: true. It is so true. It's um yeah that whole thing, like you say, why can't we already just. Have more kindness and understanding for one another um constantly, but also for ourselves. Because I think so often, like you say, we don't—we're not even, you know, kind to ourselves. Like you coming back having so much guilt for like being over there for that time, and it's you know we're constantly almost like in a battle with ourselves when we should really, as you said, just shh and sit still and listen for a bit, listen to what we need, listen to what we're we're hearing. I always love that quote. Um, was it that? That was. It's almost like a phrase. It's not a quote, but it's. God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. You're supposed to listen twice as much as you talk. And I think that's so funny, but so oh, true.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is amazing. And that just made me realize the people who listen less are the ones with smaller ears. Because <laughs> I'm speaking about some people I know personally that I just think, why do you ever listen? And that just made me realize they have really small ears. It was actually one of the things I noticed why are your ears so small? <laughs> so,
0: like, guys, beware of people with small ears. They're not listening. Beware of the finish. I mean, it's been such an incredible conversation, Peggy. Thank you so much. I've gone to Thank so you. many different places. Um, I'd love to ask you, you know, as the podcast, as we know, is called Unstressable. What do you believe helps make us unstressable?
1: I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I think from personal experience, um, as I mentioned, just, you know, because when you say meditation, people go into this idea of, okay, you need a quiet space and you need to sit with your, it's just letting yourself be in the moment. Like I said, that moment where you can hear yourself or feel yourself breathing and you can just kind of feel, you know, just, the different, you know, I can feel my feet and, you know, and, and there are times where I was under such stress that I needed to find a way to stabilise so that I can continue. Um, and I think for me it was just like, you know, just just go back in and try to balance, try to breathe and try to feel yourself physically where your hands are, where your feet are. And then, you know, I think it's, that's, you know, if you, if for an immediate, you know, sometimes that level of stress has happened to me in a meeting in Sydney, you know, it it was not necessarily a, a situation in Kurdistan um the other thing that I you know this question really made me think about you know I can only speak of my own experiences and I don't like to speak on behalf of other people and I don't like to judge or you know look at someone else and say well I think they're stressed because they expect too much from themselves I kind of think well when do i get stressed because i'm not realistic about a timeline or i'm not realistic about my commitments or you know i don't give myself enough time and appreciation and love and respect that i'm human and i need it, i need to be um, it's okay if <clears throat> you know every morning i sit and i plan my day it's okay if some of those things on my tick on my you know boxes are not ticked that's okay I can always move them to the next day. You know, it's what you expect from yourself and sometimes it's in conflict with what you want and what you are or, you know, that's, that's, you know, then you kind of, you need to give yourself that love, that time, that appreciation and kind of a pat on the back every now and again and say, why am I punishing you? why am I constantly punishing you? Just look in the mirror and say, why am I punishing you? Because I do that a lot. <laughs> and that really helped me um, when I came back and when I was going through those couple of years, it's been five years since I am Yazidi and I haven't been able to pick up the feature film till now. So you can imagine, you know, it was those, you know, it's, the, it's that it's not I don't need forgiveness I never needed to feel guilty to begin with. Mm -hmm. Why do I think I need forgiveness? Why did I feel guilty? Um, You know, and then there's there's that stress. So now we've talked about two types of stress. And then there's the stress when you want to achieve something and that stresses you. So if that feels good but is stressful, then that's a good thing right? Sometimes it's not stressful, but feels awful. That's not really a good thing, is it? <laughs> right? So sometimes I think, you know, when it comes to fear or stress, we, we paint them in this, um, you know, this awful shade of whatever is the worst color that you don't like, because it's different for everyone. Um, um, For me, it's like pastel yellow. I really don't (laughs) like it, (laughs) but you know. And then I'm just like, oh, I better, I better quickly be able to like deal with that and shove it under the rug or do whatever, dissipate it or whatever. But sometimes that fear is telling you something. You need to listen. If I'm in danger and I'm afraid, I'm not going to sit there and go, all right, now I'm going to face my fears. And, you know, I'm going to deal with this fear of the unknown, you know, and it's, okay, that fear is a red flag and you need to do something about it. Or, like I said, you know, the frustrations or the fears or the um, the stress that I had every time I came to this topic or documentaries or anything, you know, just running away from it, it's telling me something. So I need to wake up and think, okay, all right, fine, talk to me. What do you want to say, stress? What do you want to say, fear? And listen to it, mm. you know? I love that. And it is the
0: truest thing, I think. Is so much of uh, our stress and people not dealing with their stress is the reality that, that we don't listen to ourselves and we don't understand from day to day what we need. And we think we just blindly carry on for months at a time. And we change every day. Our experiences change every day. Our feelings change every day. And it's really, like you say, getting in tune getting in tune with ourselves and actually just listening and seeing, creating that space to just hear ourselves, I think is uh, such and a important thing. And
1: allowing ourselves, yeah, sorry, I cut, cut you off. What was no, the last sure. thing? No, I was just
0: saying I think it's such an important thing.
1: I used to feel guilty for going to the beach. Come on. <laughs> you need to go to, you need the sun, you need salt water, you need sand, what's wrong with that? And I was like, nope, I wrote in my diary this morning that I was going to do this, this, and this, this. And I thought, why am I doing this? Humans are not robots. We're not supposed to be like that. Just relax, dude. <laughs> it's okay, you know?
0: So true. Take the pressure off. Well, oh, Fig, it's been so amazing talking to you. I mean, it's such an incredible insight and just, oh, Story and perspective, and I just can't wait to for the next film
1: to come out. It's been amazing talking to you. It's always so nice talking to you, Um, and you've got so much insight, honestly, and um, I wish that um, at some point someone gets to interview you on your podcast and, you know, just, just get an idea of, you know, for example, all the questions that you asked me bar the particular questions about, you know, the film and things like that, you know, what would your answers be? I'd be yeah. very interested to know. And like <laughs> if I've done
0: a mini episode with my friend Tara Swart earlier in the podcast, but I would actually, I said to myself the other day, I was like, I think I'd like to do another one in a different, like tangent, more like in depth, because like we were just saying, things always change. And, you know, since that interview, my life has changed a lot anyway and my perspective and it's, yeah, it's funny. So
1: wow yeah exactly because we learn
0: exactly know. constantly trying constantly we have try to
1: learn. yeah and 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 you can't learn and be the same person you were before learning so
0: so true well thank you so
1: much all right Becca. thank you so much have a really good day you too. take care of yourself and speak soon
0: i hope you enjoyed this incredibly fascinating episode of the wonderful pega if you did enjoy the episode then please share it on your social media on stories tag us we would love to hear from you I will put Peggy's Instagram in the notes and her website so you can see where you can view some of her incredible work and if you haven't watched the documentary film I'm Yazidi I cannot recommend it enough I look forward to being with you next time with another incredible guest to help you become unstressable stay tuned